coyote. <laughs> well, welcome back. Um, another week. It feels like it has been a long time. Mm. May I say that TAG has mm. the capacity to um, elongate weeks for the better and for the worse. Um, and that game is now over. So that is, that is good. Um, as I've shared with some of the guys, um, when God closes the door, Satan opens a window, if you will. Or gets the Amazon Prime. <laughs> <laughs> um, open up back to uh, Colossians chapter 3 once again tonight. Um, if you'll recall, recall, we have been sharing how Paul instructs us to have a burning passion for God, which comes both from our heart and from our mind. Uh, verse 1 said, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So for the past weeks, I've been telling you that if you are raised with Christ, then basically we must love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, or to have a heavenly focus, if you will. And tonight, um, we're sort of shifting a little bit. Um, Paul is going to take us somewhere that is a little bit more fundamental and a little bit more basic than we have been before. He's going to get to a little bit deeper root as I read it. If Paul has been describing Christians by who they desire, tonight he will be describing Christians by who they are. If instead of Paul just saying that we've been given a new set of desires, he's going to make sure that we know that our very essence has been changed right to the core. We are not who we once were. Instead of talking about holy affections, tonight we are going to be talking about holy identity. Okay, so um, have you, I'll just, I'll start with this question. I, I feel like this will, this will kick us off pretty well. Have you ever wondered um, something as simple as who am I? Like you've come to a point in your life and you're like, who even am I? Okay, I'm, I'm raising your hand, I'm curious. Because I think this is majority of us. And I, I have a specific moment in my mind where I was like, why do I do the things that I do? And that was sort of the question that struck me is, and I had to work through that. Um, if you have, and that by numbers here, pretty much you all have, what are the sort of things that you were contemplating when, when you're going through who am I? What are the, what are the things that you're comp- contemplating in your mind? Topics, if you will. Why am I here? Uh, what niche do I feel? Okay, what do you mean by that? Purpose. Okay. What are the tendencies of my personality? Okay. What What specifically? Just, what's my personality like? What are my gifts? What do I excel in? What do I not excel in? Okay. What are ways so I can actually predict what I will do. Give me a couple more, and then I'll come with a follow-up question on it. Both of you. Sure. And then I'll always come back to well, my identity is ultimately Christ. 
but what does that mean for my life? Right. You know, so there's, yeah, a lot of questions. Yeah, well, are these existential crises normally pleasant or painful um, when you're going through them? More painful. More painful, I would say. Why, why does that tend to be the case, just from experience? We suck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Because you have to be honest with yourself. It's easy to be complacent and go about your day, and when you are confronted with the realization that you are not the greatest person all the time, or you have mistakes or failings that you have in your life, it's kind of a wake-up call. Yes, and and what I'm hinting at through this, oh, I'm sorry, yes, I'm, I apologize. I was just going to say, like, if, I don't know, I guess you almost feel like yourself, that should be the one thing that you can control, you feel like, you know, you're the only one who can control yourself, but then if you don't even really fully understand what that is and what that means, then I think people can feel extremely out of place, mm -hmm. and just like, nothing is right if you don't even have, like, quote, the basics yes. down and understood. The, the reason I ask these questions is there is no quicker way to feel like you're just going through the motions, like you're, I'm doing all of this stuff. And yet I'm questioning fundamentally who I am, where I fit in, what my purpose is. And so oftentimes we, we continue to participate in life. We don't completely stop doing the things that we're doing. But yet behind the scenes we're like, I have no idea my essence. Like I'm, I'm doing the stuff that I'm supposed to do, but what is my essence? And when I'm reading through this passage, I see very much, we start off with Paul saying, you must desire God. Like think on Christ, set your heart on Christ. And yet there is no quicker way to feel like you're going through the, just going through the motions or you are sort of forcing yourself to desire something, if that's even possible, than to not know who you really are. And so Paul gives us a thing that we're supposed to do, the important part, but then he also takes a moment to talk about here is why your desires should flow from this. And one analogy, I've actually shared this with Trey before. We were at Fasantos, I shared this. One analogy I was taught is that if your life is a tree, you know, and we talk about trees bearing fruit, you bear good fruit or bad fruit. It's almost as if you're taping fruit on, like instead of the bad fruit, you're like plucking it off and taping up good fruit. And that's not going to result in well-nourished, healthy fruit, but it looks decent. Like you desire God on the outside. It looks like you're doing that. You look like you're desiring God, but is that like an actually healthy tree? I don't know. Not really. Interpretation. I threw it back at you. I don't know if you remember this. I said, like, one, when you have taped fruit, you know, other people can't tell that it's taped in the moment until later. Yeah. And two, you can actually fool yourself. Yes. Because if you get distant enough from yourself and it's taped on, you can actually fool yourself that you're bearing fruit when you're not just bearing fruit. Yes. So you can fool others, and then worse than fooling others, you can fool yourself too. Yes. So I remember that. If Paul just left us to these first two verses, this is exactly where we'd be. We would just be taping up fruit on a messed up tree. We'd be trying to force ourselves into desiring God. But we're going to, instead of trying to talk about coaxing ourselves into loving God, we're going to not be a bad tree that's taping on good fruit, but rather Paul says that Christians are good trees and our desire for God is something which naturally and organically comes up because we have been fundamentally changed in our very essence. Okay, and so what Paul is going to back up basically and say is, you're dead, you're now alive, and then he talks about that life a little bit. The most fundamental idea is that when you are saved, you were, who you were is dead and you have a new life. And from that new life then comes a bunch of new desires that we have been talking about. 
Let's jump into the text for tonight, which I don't anticipate taking an incredibly long time. This is, this is uh, a thoughty passage, but it's short. And, um, and so I, I don't think it will take us the whole time here. Um, so Paul reminds us of a theme starting in verse, uh, verse number three here. For you have died. Paul reminds us of a theme that we have seen all the way through the book of Colossians. True Christians' old self is dead and gone. Since we have been through this a couple times, uh, would someone be willing to share your understanding, uh, whether that's theologically or practically, uh, of what it means that our old man is quote-unquote dead? Like, try to put it in not theological, you know, Christianese, if you would. What does that, what does that mean? Yes. Uh, you have replaced the pleasures that you would usually go to okay. and replace them with Christ, and then in turn, you figure out that he's your true pleasure after all. All right, a nice Christian hedonist spin. I like it. What else we got? You actively choose to restructure your livelihood to that, that, to that, the guidelines that God has given you. Yeah, absolutely. Other, give me like one or two more. I was actually talking about this earlier. It's our old selves, our old nature is dead. That sinful nature, being children of wrath, is dead. We are children of God, so our nature is God. The very like core of your being, when you are in Christ, is to want the things of God. It's like that Peter passage where he says we have become partakers of the divine nature. Um, that's that's absolutely right. Uh, one more. Give me one more, and then we'll then I'll follow up a little bit on this. Practically, how's how have you, how are you dead? Process that he once used to make decisions, no matter how big or small, has mm-hmm. been renewed. Yes. So you probably used to look at an old version of yourself and say, because I'm this way, I should make decisions like this. Because you've got a new self, the decision-making process has been adjusted. Sure. So one of one of Paul's motifs throughout this book, like you're dead to the elemental spirits of the world. We went through that in chapter two. You're dead, and if you're dead and you died with Christ, then what comes next in Paul's little logic progression. You die and you are resurrected, made alive, yes. And then you are given new life, okay? That's sort of how Paul goes through things. But Paul's about to teach us something about this newfound life, however. It is something which I don't think is necessarily, well, it is kind of obvious from experience, but it's not often thought about, if that makes sense. So it is something that we see in our experience, but isn't contemplated very often. So, verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. So your new spiritual life and nature is hidden to some degree by your human flesh from both yourself and others. If we can have just a bit of vulnerability here for a moment, have you sincerely questioned at any point in your life if you actually do have a new nature, like if you're actually changed? And the reason I ask that is like, if you, if you go to church for any amount of time, sit through sermons, talk about the new life, talk about the change Christ has brought in you, whatever, yada, yada. But the cynic inside of you is like, man, I don't really, number one, I don't feel it. Three quarters of the time, I don't see any change, which might mean that they're like, just logically, is there anything actually different or am I just, is this whole thing a fake and I'm just basically psyching myself into something, right? There's no real power to it. And, and one of the things that I, I want to draw out from that is um, 
our, this passage shows us that, and you guys know that my answer to doubt is always to assess the fruit of your life. It's not to tell yourself that you prayed a prayer one time. It's to look at your life and see if you're actually changed and growing and developing. But even as a true Christian, the full expression of who you are in your renewed essence is occluded from perfect view. Your, your life, your new essence to be raised with Christ is not perfectly seen even now. Which, which, as I was thinking about that, ethically, one could take that line of thinking and say, basically, if I can't even tell if my new nature is there for sure, why would I even try to be different? If there is no different nature evident, then why would I even try to live differently? And I want to pause right there because, um, because actually, instead of taking that line of thought, Paul's entire ethic is grounded in this sort of thing. And so... I want to pause here. Look at verses 5, verses 9, and verses 10. You will all see that Paul's like list of bad things and good things are grounded in death and life, uh, of spiritually speaking. And so what I wanted to say is the goal of Christian sanctification development is to reveal your new life more and more fully until Christ comes and unveils who you really are in full and complete perfection. So taking a, just a little different spin on sanctification, our life is hidden with Christ in heaven. Our, our perfection and our perfect essence is there, but it's occluded by our human flesh. What sanctification is, is put to death, therefore, what is earthly among you, or mortify your flesh. You're killing off your flesh so that your new nature is more evident than ever. Okay? 2 Corinthians three seventeen through 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In Colossians, it speaks of how we are regaining the image of God, which was marred in us at the fall. And what we see in 2 Corinthians is that we go from one degree of glory to the next on the journey to have that true image completely shown in us once again. So Paul is basically saying right there, think of it like stepping stones are sort of bounding from one level of glory upward until eventually you will be completely perfected and you will look completely like the image of God that you were designed to be thrown it all the way back to the garden. And that's one of those themes that we've been bringing up again and again is that Christ is here to inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. We are the beginning of the end times. We're, we are the beginning of Christ's restorative work because as it says right down here, uh, and have put on the new self, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, whether it's morally or intellectually, there's so much marring that happened at the fall. And one of Christ's roles is to come and to restore what was lost, to rebuild that fellowship there. So this word hidden is in the perfect tense, um, verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This word uh, is in the perfect tense, which indicates a permanent past thing with on, ongoing results. Ongoing, it's in an ongoing fashion. Um, as Mu says, this hidden revealed motif um, is fundamental to the widespread Jewish apocalyptic worldview. According to this perspective, many things relating to God and his purposes exist in the present, but because they are in heaven, they are hidden from human sight. So when, when you get like revelation, the idea is the apocalyptic seer is given a vision of these things that will one day be revealed as they come to pass and are seen by people on earth. So Paul suggests at the present time, our heavenly identity is real, 
but it is hidden. Because Christ, our, our nature, our life is caught up in oneness with Christ. Remember, this, not to get overly technical here, but Colossians has more spatial um, es- es- eschatology as opposed to a temporal time. It's more spatial. And so the, what Paul is saying here, he's addressing them on their own terms. We talked about that a few weeks back. Our life is real, but it's hidden up there with Christ in heaven. And to make sure that Paul gets in his temporal aspect, you'll see that there is a future aspect in verse 4. But the idea is it's no less real. It's just sort of occluded. You get glimpses, right? And as we become more and more spiritual, we get more and more glimpses. And that's unfortunately like how it seems to work practically. And that's what I mean. It's kind of obvious from practice. But you don't stop and think about that very often. Like some days you're just like, I am really killing this. I am in the image of my creator right now. And then like three seconds later, you are very much not. Um, but but those, those start to happen more frequently. The more mature you become, the more these things become a pattern of life until eventually you're transcending upward and you take two steps back and you, know, you continue on upward. But by our, um, so our life has been hidden and still is and, and it's hidden in Christ. But by our dying and our resurrecting with Christ, we have become so united with him that our true essence is wherever he is. So we are hidden with Christ. And then Paul uses a phrase which is really rare. Paul's vocabulary, I think, only uses this two or three times in in the entire New Testament for Paul. He, He uses the phrase, in God. And this phrase modifies both life and in Christ. And this would indicate that because Christ has his being in God and is unified with the Father, we who are hidden in Christ are also hidden in God as well. Okay, so if we're unified with Christ and Christ is hidden in God, then we're just like in this ball of Trinitarian love, if you will. And uh, one, one example, David Platt, this is like a classic David Platt video if you ever watch him. He has the totes out and he puts, he has a box that says me, and then he puts me in Christ, and then he puts me in a bucket called God, and then he puts me in a bucket like this, you know. And so he's like, if Satan wants to get to you, he has to get through all these buckets, if you will, these totes. And so that's what, that's what he's saying here is your life, your nature, is hidden in Christ, and Christ is so connected with God that our life is not only hidden in Christ, but it's also hidden in God. Ephesians 2, 5 through 6 speaks of this from a different perspective in saying that our life is so in the heavenlies that that's where we are right now. Paul speaks of it as very real right now. Ephesians 2, 5 through 6. Made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raise us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So in Christ Jesus, somehow miraculously, we have been raised up to to be with Christ and be seated with him in the heavenlies. Not only then is our essence waiting to be fully revealed, and not only are we deeply united with Christ and by implication with the Father, but one other implication flows from this. You are safe and secure. If you are in Christ and in God and both of them in heaven, then your treasure of your full self, your, that is a treasure, right? I mean, I imagine, imagine having your perfect nature on display all the time, right? That is a treasure. And it is in heaven where it is perfectly safe and is perfectly secured. You have no need to worry about someone coming in and tarnishing or stealing or anything to your upcoming spiritual glorification 
because you are in Christ, in God, in heaven, which is unaccessible to any evil force or to any evil person. Uh, this is truly the end of the story, Matthew six nineteen through 21. treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break and steal for where your treasure is your heart will be also so your your full nature and your your redemption is hidden right now but when will your glory be on display verse 4 when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So when is it going to happen? When Christ comes back. When we see Christ, everything will be changed, and the magnificence of our Savior, that glorious light, will be so transformative in nature that our full essence... Okay, you don't have two natures, right? You don't have a bad nature and a good nature left. God destroyed the old bad nature. You only have a good nature in you. Romans teaches that the only reason that your good nature is not fully on display is because you still have mortal flesh, right? And one of the things I actually included, uh, we're going to sing a worship song in the end. This robe of flesh, I'll drop and rise to seek the everlasting prize, right? And I love that imagery because once you shed that robe of flesh, you are good to go. The only place where sin can reign, according to Romans 6, is from our mortal flesh. But actually, I tell you what, turn over to Romans for just a second, but not Romans, uh, Romans 6. Go over to Romans 8, if you would. Romans chapter 8, if you have a Bible. Um, that's actually to the right of John and Acts, like I just did. Um, believe it or not. Romans chapter 8, 18 through 25. Um, this, is, this is a really helpful passage, I think. Um, do you groan and desire to be perfect? I would, I would say that most of us do if you're here, because if you didn't, you wouldn't probably be here. Just spending a Monday night with us. So you, you desire to be perfect pretty heavily, but you desire, not only do you desire that, you desire to be rid of your sinful body, your sinful flesh. Know that you're not alone. While we suffer from the curse, not only do we suffer from the curse, but also the earth itself suffers from the curse. Starting in verse 18 of chapter 8. For I consider that the suffering of this present times, the sufferings are not worthy, uh, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That would be us if you're a Christian. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but guess who? We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Bodies, right? Flesh. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope 
that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You are not alone. While we suffer from the curse, the earth does too. Nature and Christians both want to be restored to our original untaintedness. This is literally what it means to have hope. We are patiently waiting for Christ to change us in the twinkling of an eye. And so as we groan, nature itself groans, everything wants to be, and that's what Colossians taught, right? Back all the way back in like chapter one, is that Christ was Lord over creation and Lord over his church. And those are the two entities which he will restore, right? He will restore us and he'll restore the new heavens and the new earth, okay? Those are the two things that are gonna be restored. First uh, John 2, 28 through 3, 3. This is a passage that you probably have forgotten about, but we spent a fair amount of time looking at this one uh, just a few months back. First uh, John 2, 28 and then three, uh, through 3, 3. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at, the, at uh, his coming. If you know that he is righteous, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given uh, to us, that we should be called children of God, and, we, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and when we, and when we will be and what will be has not yet appeared. Or what we will be has not yet appeared, sorry. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So follow the, follow the really cool logic here. Number one, the world doesn't recognize our true nature and ourselves sometimes. Um, it, we, the world doesn't recognize us because it didn't recognize Christ. And he is the perfect demonstration of the nature that we're turning into. Okay? So uh, I just, I was, as I was listening, I thought of a couple examples. When uh, Christ is starting to break out of the scene in his ministry, they, they thought he was the son of God, right? No, they said, what's Joseph's son doing out here? Haven't we known him our entire life to be Joseph's son, the carpenter? So they didn't recognize it. Somehow, like for whatever, in whatever way Christ lived, they, they, they were unaware. And trace that all the way through his ministry until the very end, people were still not recognizing him for who he was. And so if they're not recognizing Christ's nature as the Son of God, you cannot expect that they will recognize you as the Son of God. So then second, we will see him in his full radiance, and this coming is going to transform us. And if this is what we are genuinely hoping for, you will strive to be more like Christ as we wait for him to come. Can you see how contradictory it would be to say, yes, I hope in Christ's return and the perfection that will be brought in me in that, and yet all the while you make no effort towards unveiling that nature of perfection yourself. Right, so like, oh yeah, dude, like, I hope in Christ's coming, I'm looking forward to that because I'll be perfect, and then you don't do anything to look like that like you want that so badly that you do nothing <laughs> that's what john's saying there is everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure if you actually want that you're probably going to live in line with that because we tend to do what we actually want to do 
And, and so if you actually desire that, if you actually hope in that, then you're going to live in accordance with that, at least generally speaking. One, uh, going back to uh, Colossians um, to finish out, I told you it would be a little short tonight. One potential original reading for uh, this passage in verse 4 um, is instead of saying that um, when Christ who is your life, a potential reading manuscript-wise is our life. And so Paul would be intentionally substituting himself in here. And I, I sense that Paul undoubtedly looks forward to this blessing in himself as well. Um, Paul, Paul not only saw that Christ was his life in the future, but also that it was right now. Philippians 1, 20 through 21. So that reality that our life is Christ and that life is going to become full in us someday, Paul used that to identify now. Paul was like, well, Paul said Philippians 1, 20 through 21. <laughs> Read it instead. <laughs> I eagerly expect and hope that that I will, will in no way be ashamed, but but will have su- sufficient courage so that now as Christ is will be exalted in my body, whether by my life or by death. For for to me, live in Christ and die. They is gain. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So Paul is seeing his very life as it is in the future now. It is real now, even if it is hidden. But um, it's going to be completed in the future, yes. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass a saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for knowing, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Did you catch that last phrase? Of the, that's, that's what caught my eye as I read through that. For you can know that your labor is not in vain. And sometimes it seems like we're doing a bunch of good things, but no one is seeing and noticing. We are actually actively trying to sanctify ourselves and to have this new nature on display and to, to be transformed into the image that was lost. We actually are trying. And no one is there to notice. There is no hype. There is no fanfare. But... When Christ comes to fully reveal who you are, he will also reveal how you have been or have not been working to reveal your true nature all along. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I, am, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, 
do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. In closing then, here is what I want you to take away from tonight's study. Your perfect resurrection nature is not fully revealed yet, but when Christ comes, you will finally achieve what you have been striving for today. So Christ is coming. Your perfection is coming if you're a true Christian. Your, your real nature will finally be on display. And if you're a true Christian, you desire that almost more than anything, second to Christ himself and just him and his awesomeness. Um, but what you've started working on in, in conjunction with the Spirit today will be fully, fully, fully brought to fruition in that, in that final day. If you want a... Um, if you want a good little theologic saying to tuck away in your mind, justification is monergistic, but sanctification is synergistic. That's a really, that's a complicated little phrase, basically meaning justification is God's work alone, but sanctification is something that you must work on together in obedience going forward. So we are going to sing a final song. Um, Nathan, we're going to sing Sweet Hour of Prayer. And before we do, I'm going to... I'm going to read uh, one, one of the verses in the recording. Is not, it's not saying in the recording, but I'm going to go ahead and read it anyways. Um, here are two, two different verses. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer. The joys I feel, the bliss I share, of whose anxious spirits burn with strong desire for thy return. With such I hasten to uh, the, the place where God my Savior shows his face and gladly take my station there and wait for thee, sweet hour of prayer. Till from Mount Pisgah's lofty height, I view my home and take my flight. This robe of flesh I'll drop and rise to seize the everlasting prize and shout while passing through the air, farewell, farewell, sweet hour of prayer. And so I would just take just take next 15 seconds, look up the words. It's an older hymn. I don't expect you guys to know it by heart um, unless you grew up very Baptist. And... Um, and so um, just take a moment and uh, look up those words and we will we'll sing just in a second here. The little version we're doing is the Casting Crowns version, so they do <laughs> so. Um, the one that popped up on Google won't have the, all the lyrics that they have, but... Um, if you search the Casting Crowns version, it will.
in seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief, and oft escaped the tempter's snare by thy Christ, all the secret good that you have been doing will be revealed, and who you truly are will be finally revealed. Um, you will finally be what God has always wanted you to be. We'll finish on these two passages, Danny and Nate, uh, Romans 8, 26 through 30, and Revelation 22, 20. Uh, Romans 8, because there is a progression here, it's the golden chain, and whom he calls, whom he foreknew, all of it will result, all of them that he foreknew will result in one thing, and that is the glorification. He who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. There is no plan B. God will finish it. Romans 8. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, knows what the mind of the Spirit is. 
because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Revelations 22.20 He who testifies to these things says, Surely I come soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that is... In the hour of prayer that we did have, that was my prayer for the Afghan people, is that in the final analysis, we could do this right now. We just finish it all. It's just, we'll be perfected tonight. Afghan folks will have their physical protection had. Christ comes, we're changed in the twinkling of an eye, and we await that day with hope. And that is the hope that will motivate all of the rest of the ethical section that this book will be. Revelation 20 to there is the reason that you should live differently. Okay? All right. That is all that we have for tonight. And um, we have an extra, I, I thank you guys for being willing to pray separately. Um, and since we have an extra 15 minutes, make sure to hang out with somebody and say hi to somebody since you didn't in a way that you normally would during prayer groups. Well, we did pray separately, but we weren't alone. That is true. <laughs> Right, you know, I'm sure they want you to know.